Hello, and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. When you think of heaven, what images come to mind? Hanging out in the clouds, playing harps? Maybe tuning in to how things are going back on Earth once in a while? Or is it something else? Teaching team member Caleb Click continues the series Heaven with this sermon entitled The Reality of Heaven, which covers Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 to 8. For more information and to watch or hear other sermons, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. This series has been so fun to teach so far for me and uh, to lead two weeks ago to lead us through um, the longing for heaven last week, the hope of heaven. If you missed either of those sermons, encourage you to go back. So much encouraging feedback of the way the Lord is using this series. Today, Caleb's going to be leading us in the reality of heaven. And then next week, I'll be back to lead us in the assurance of heaven. What an important, significant topic. So let me pray as Caleb comes. Father, thank you. Thank you for the reality of heaven that we'll focus on this morning. We thank you for the ways in which you speak to us through the word preached. Would you do that now? Lord, we do thank you for our brother, Kevin. Thank you for the ways in which you have used him so powerfully to be an immense blessing to this church. And would you send him out of here going forth uh, to be a great blessing beyond. Lord, we're yours. We want to hear from you now. Would you speak to us in Jesus' name? Amen. church. You've got your Bibles. Go ahead and open up with me to the last book of your Bible, the book of Revelation. We'll be looking at chapter 21. And I have the privilege this morning uh, of taking us to the reality of heaven, as Jeff said. Uh, And I got to just confess this up front. I'm a little bit nervous about this because I have 35 minutes to convey eternity. Uh, I can't even give you a thimbleful of what the scriptures teach about heaven in this sermon. I can't give you even a thimbleful of what's in this passage in this sermon. Uh, Jeff and I were joking earlier, I have literally 14 single space pages of extra notes that did not make it into the sermon this morning. So thank God you were spared that, and this is what was left. But while my words could never even imagine to convey the fullness of what heaven will be, I think what we're engaging with this morning, and it is vital for us to understand. Because if we as God's people do not understand where it is that God is bringing us, if we don't know what his intention for us actually is, and we have no awareness of how the story of our redemption will end, how do you think that we could ever properly fulfill the role that God has for us right now if all we have is the beginning and the middle and not the end. Revelation 21, Revelation 21 gives you the end. Jesus has returned in glory. Satan and his minions, they have been vanquished once and for all. 
The dead have been raised and the righteous have been separated from the unrighteous, those who belong to Jesus from those who do not, and each have been sent into their eternal destinies. And then right here at this moment, God lifts the veil on one thing more and says, here is the place I have prepared for my people. Read with me in chapter 21, starting in verse one. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death, death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, to the thirsty. I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable. As for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. This is God's word. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we come to you and we ask that through your spirit you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see. Would we hear these words, and Lord, would we eat them, even as Jeremiah did, and Lord, would they be our joy and our heart's delight as those who are called by your name. Would you do this in Jesus' name? Amen. One of my favorite albums this year has been this album by a woman named Natalie Bergman called Mercy. And if you've been in my car or in my office or in my house, you've probably heard this album because I've been playing it on repeat. It's probably driving my wife nuts because I just keep going back to the same one because for me, there's two things at work. One, it's just a beautiful piece of music. But two, it's an album that aches for heaven. It's these songs put together by a woman who has experienced the brokenness of this world and who longs for everything to be made whole. When Natalie Bergman was a little girl, her mother died of brain cancer. And then in 2019, just before she was supposed to walk on stage at Radio City Music Hall to perform, she got a phone call telling her that not only had her stepmother been killed, but her father had been killed as well because a drunk driver had veered into the wrong side of the road and claimed both of their lives. And when that news came, 
she has said in interviews, she just collapsed because she couldn't believe that death had found her again. And this album, this album was the fruit of that experience. These songs, they are the broken-hearted prayers of a woman who is asking Jesus for answers even as she is clinging to him for hope. Where she is saying, Jesus, I will praise you in the midst of trouble. I will trust you even through all of these tears, but oh, I need you. I need to know that you will deliver me from this darkness and you will bring me into the light. I need to know that there is some place where I belong, that there is a home that awaits for me where all these sad things are finally made untrue. I need to know that there is some sense that can be made of the loss of my mother and my stepmother and my father that somehow you are going to restore and renew everything that has been broken and in a line that is an echo, I think, of every single one of our longings, she says at the start of one of the songs, I come to you to answer my prayer. I long to know about heaven. Revelation 21 says that the thing we long to know, the thing we long to know, God, he longs to answer. Because in this text, God says, I want you to know the reality of heaven. And I don't just want you to know it. I want you to know the certainty of it. For this reason, I want you there with me. The thing we want to know so desperately, God in his kindness and in his grace, he wants us to know it too. He wants us to know first the reality of heaven. Look at these first four verses. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things, they have passed away. Now, before we can even start to unpack what God has given to John in this vision for the sake of his people, we need to deal with some misconceptions first. Because my guess as someone who has grown up in the evangelical world, is that most of us, we have all of these images and these ideas about heaven that we have unconsciously imbibed from the culture around us, and we don't even realize it. We have these images of people dying and then their spirits sort of rising like a vapor from their bodies and then ascending up to heaven where they're gonna be like Bugs Bunny on a cloud playing the harp or Patrick Swayze and Ghost walking into the light. And while I think most of us, I would hope, would have at least a little more theologically robust idea of what's happening, I don't think that idea is too far from what most of us think. To go to heaven 
It is to be, have our souls freed from these physical bodies and to ascend up to God in heaven and to enter into this ethereal sort of disembodied state where everything is now made right. And this physical world we inhabit, these bodies that now clothe us, these are just temporary things standing in the way of our final destination. And I want to make this very clear. While that is a common vision, it is not a biblical one. It has more in common with the philosophy of Plato, who taught that your body in this world are hindrances that either oppose or imprison your souls than it is with what the scriptures bear witness to. The scriptures, they paint for us an altogether different picture. While it's true that scripture does speak of something that we call the intermediate state, that when you die, we are then away from the body and at home with the Lord, as Jeff taught us last week from 2 Corinthians 5, where we are somehow, our souls are separated from our bodies and we go to be with the Lord, it never ever portrays that as the end. It never sets that up as the ultimate goal. In fact, even in 2 Corinthians 5, and in almost every other place you find someone speaking of the intermediate state, it is always with something that I can only describe as this sort of sanctified discontent. Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 has to say, I have to be of good courage to face this. In Revelation 6, the saints who have been martyred for their faith are sitting before the throne of God. They are away from the body and at home with the Lord. They're in the intermediate state, and yet what are they doing? They are crying out to the one who sits on the throne, how much longer? There is something that is still not there because we were created for something more. If we want to unpack heaven, the answer is not simply to look at the end of the story. It's to go back to the very beginning when God created the heavens and the earth in Genesis 1 to 2. Because what God is teaching us in those chapters, it's not simply how the world began. He's telling us his intention for where the world is going to go. God didn't make and design man to be a soul floating in a disembodied state. He designed you for this world. And when he created this physical world, over and over again in Genesis 1, he declares it to be good, 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 good. It is a place that is suffused with his glory and that pulsates with his majesty. And mankind, far from being a soul trapped in a body, mankind was designed as a soul and a body together, as an integrated whole, to live in this world as an image bearer of God and to labor in the midst of creation. Remember, work is not something that comes about after the fall. Work is good to labor in the midst of creation for God's glory and creation's good so that the glory of God would spread from one end of creation to the other and fill all things. And God, in the midst of this physical world that he made, 
And with his people in their physical bodies, God would dwell with man until one day heaven and earth became so united that all of us would enter into the Sabbath rest of God on the seventh day. That's the direction from the very start where God points the story of the scriptures. The problem's what? Well, we were created in that reality. We never entered into that rest, did we? Because Adam, hearing the whisper of the serpent, that God, instead of being a gracious and loving father, was in fact a cruel and vindictive tyrant, somebody who was keeping him from the things that would really give him life. Adam disobeyed the Lord and through his sin brought death into the world and dragged not just mankind but creation down with him so that in place of harmony we have discord. In place of unity we have separation. In place of peace and joy and fulfillment and flourishing, we have death and sorrow and sadness and pain. And the beauty, the beauty of the God of the gospel is that, that didn't, God didn't look at that and shrug his shoulders and say, all right, on to the next thing. Instead, what you see from Genesis 3 to the very end, it is God the Father looking at the world that has been ruined by sin and declaring his intention to restore it through the death of the Son and to recreate it through the work of the Spirit into a kingdom for himself. That, not some disembodied state floating around somewhere in the skies, but a physical embodied world, one that is spiritual and physical all at the same time, that is the place where God is taking us. And that vision, it finds its glorious fulfillment in those first four verses of Revelation 21. He says in the first verse, there is a new heavens and a new earth. New, not in the sense of there was one thing and now there's another. New, not in the sense of I had an old car and I didn't like it, so I scrapped it. And now I've gone and bought an entirely new one but new in the sense of quality or essence. New as in I had unrefined silver, but now I have silver purified through fire and cleansed of all its contaminants. New in the sense of development, not the radical replacement of one for the other. And you see it right here in this text because what is it that John adds to the statement that there's a new heavens and a new earth? There's no more sea. Now, we hear that and we go, well, what is he talking about? Why is there no water anymore in heaven? That doesn't make any sense. Well, you have to remember the book of Revelation is something called apocalyptic literature where God, through, his human, through human, a human author, is using images to convey truth. And in the book of Revelation, 
The sea represents the source of all sin and evil and hardship and chaos. The sea, it's the place where the serpent comes from. The sea is the place that is representative of every threat that exists against God's people and God's kingdom. And what John is saying to us in this vision is that God is telling him all of that, every threat, everything that's separated from us, God, from God, it is not there any longer. Satan and sin will never rear their ugly heads again in this reality. They are gone and they are no more purged from the world that God made and made very good. And God's people, those who've trusted in Christ and who have walked by faith in him, those people who in this life still struggle with sin and everyday experience this clash between the flesh and the spirit, in this vision in verse two, you see those people as a holy city, the new Jerusalem, descending down from heaven as a bride adorned for her husband. All of this happening from God. And notice this. It's not God's people ascending to heaven, nor is it God's people preparing themselves for heaven. It is God's people coming down from heaven as those prepared by God. It is God's people in their resurrected, glorified bodies, purified of sin and every stain of it so that they would once more dwell in the midst of God's world as his image bears. And where is God? Right there in our midst. So intimate with his people that it describes him literally wiping the tears from our faces, the last tears of sorrow that will ever be cried, and ushering us into the victory that Christ has won over death because in this place there is no more death anymore. It's not even a possibility. There's no more mourning, there's no more sorrow, there's no more pain, only the life for which we were made in and through Christ Jesus. And we hear that. If you're anything like me, you start going, well, what will we do there? We'll do what God created us for. We will do what Adam and Eve were designed for in the garden. Only now we will do it as those who no longer struggle with sin. As those whose hearts no longer love the creation more than they love the creator as those who no longer hate his rule but delight in his rule and who love him with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, laboring to declare his glory from one end of creation to the other in perfect communion with him. That, that's the reality of heaven. There's gonna be a sense in which many of the things we do now, they will be things we are doing there but somehow made gloriously new by the resurrection power of God in the gospel. And God, God doesn't just want us to know the reality of heaven. He wants us to know the certainty of it. You know, we hear that vision and there's a part of us that's our hearts, they just kind of soar because we think, I can't even imagine a world so good, so beautiful and so glorious 
But then no sooner do our hearts soar than we look around and we realize how far from that vision we actually are. Because we don't see the new heavens and the new earth, do we? We see this place. We see this place where apartment buildings still collapse on their inhabitants. Where we get phone calls like Natalie Bergman of loved ones who have been taken from us far too soon. Where we see this world that God made and entrusted us to steward, we see it not being stewarded but squandered. And when we look at God's people, we don't see the radiant bride, do we? We see ourselves. And I love you, but we're ugly. We see people who have the sparks of God's grace, but those sparks seem to be overwhelmed by the smoke of sin. So much so we find ourselves questioning whether the people around us actually know Jesus and whether we do too. And God, the God who's reconciled us to himself in Christ, the God who's given his spirit to dwell within us, while we still live by faith and not by sight, God feels very, very far away. And so there's this piece of us that hears that vision and then looks at this world and looks at ourselves and wonders how in the world could that possibly be? How can I know that that will ever be true? And God says, here's how you know. Because it doesn't depend on us. God says, no, it depends on me. And I am the one who is making all things new. Look at verses five to six. And he was seated on the throne. He who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down. I want this recorded, John. I don't just want this for you. For these words are trustworthy and true. Here is something I want my people to know. I want it recorded. I want it remembered. I want them to build their lives on this hope. And he said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. I'm the one who created all things and I am the one who's going to renew it. I'm the one who didn't just describe reality in the beginning. I'm the one who created it in the beginning. What I say, it comes to be. I am the Lord, which means when I say this is coming, it is finished. To the thirsty, to those who ache for heaven and who long for the life that they were created for and find only in me, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The same God who shows his generous heart for sinners by sending his son into this world not to condemn them but to save them. That God, he says, there will be a day when you will experience life eternal in full and I will give it to you not because you had something to offer but simply because I delight to give it. How can you be certain this is coming? Because it doesn't depend on you. It depends on him. 
And why? Why does God want us to know the reality of heaven and its certainty? Because God wants us to be there with him. And this part, this is uncomfortable. Because what verses seven to eight say is that not everyone's going to be in heaven. Not everyone in this room or listening to this sermon is going to be in heaven. Now Jesus, Jesus says the one who will be with me, who will know God as their father and themselves as his children and who will experience the fullness of God's redemptive work in the new heavens and the new earth. It will be those who conquer. Look at verse seven. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. What's happening here? You know, if we want to understand the purpose of those two verses, we have to be very careful that we remember who God is talking to. He's not talking to the church triumphant from verse two, is he? He's talking to this church. He's talking to the church of Revelation chapters two and three, that church we just described that has the sparks of grace but also the overwhelming smoke of sin, this church that still lives in the first earth and the first heaven, this place where we experience trial and tribulation and temptation, this place where there is still a sea and where the pain and the sorrow of this world can so often make us wonder, are there better saviors? Are there things that God is withholding from me, things that I have to have, these things in this life that would tempt us to go, maybe there is another way and maybe there is another path and he is speaking to a church where people out of fear, the cowardly, are denouncing their faith, the faithless, and embracing a pattern of life that is out of accord with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he is calling to the church and saying, here is why I would have you know the reality and the certainty of heaven, because I would not have you be deceived, but I would have you conquer. I would have you be a people who build your life not on sinking sand, but on the rock that is Christ Jesus, because in your own power and in your own strength, this is not where you will be. It is only in him. Hold fast. One of my favorite favorite parts of C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia is this section from the silver chair where Jill, this little girl, she's been sucked into the world of Narnia and she's on top of this mountain and Aslan, who's the, the magical lion who kind of represents Jesus in the stories, Aslan tells her that he has a, a task for her. 
that she and her friends are gonna go down from this mountain and into the world, and they're gonna rescue a kidnapped prince. And on that journey, he gives her four signs, instructions. And he says to her, while I'm going to speak these to you clearly, when you descend the mountain into the world below, the air is going to get thicker and your senses are going to be clouded and things will not appear as you expect. And in those moments, you must remember the signs and pay no attention to appearances, but trust and obey the signs that I have given you because through those signs, I will lead you. And Jill nods her head, not fully understanding what's going on, and she descends the mountain to the world below, and sure enough, the air thickens, her senses get clouded, and she gets to the bottom and onto the ground, and suddenly everything begins to go awry. She forgets the signs one moment, she remembers them the next, but when she remembers them, she doesn't like what they're telling her because it doesn't look like life, it looks like pain and suffering and discomfort. And so on multiple occasions, when she doesn't forget the signs, she just straight up disobeys them and decides that she knows a better way. And every single time, things go from bad to worse. Until finally Jill and her friends, they decide, well maybe we should start listening to what Aslan has to say, and maybe we should trust and obey the signs, and so they decide no matter what the next sign is, they are going to follow it, they are going to obey it, and they follow the last of Aslan's signs down into a hole in the ground. And no sooner do they enter the hole, than everything just gets much, much worse. Suddenly they find themselves falling into darkness, this seemingly infinite abyss where darkness covers them like a cloud. They can't see their hands in front of their faces. And when they get to the bottom, with no way of knowing the way out, they discover that not only are they under the earth in the darkness with no way to escape, but they're surrounded by enemies who intend to lead them deeper into the darkness still. They're taken captive and they begin to go down, down, down into the depths of the earth. And Jill and her friends, they get more and more terrified until Jill in despair cries out, oh, what will become of us? What will happen to us? What is taking place? Where is our hope? And one of her friends, she says this. He says this. Now don't let your spirits down. There's one thing you've got to remember. We're back on the right lines. We're following the instructions, the signs again. Which means what? Aslan is our guide. And if he is our guide, then we are exactly where he wants us to be. And if this is where he wants us to be, we do not need to fear, only to follow. Because we know who he is, and he would not lead us astray. Why does God want us to know the reality and the certainty of heaven? Because the same God who saves us in Christ he would lead us in Christ all the way home. He knows that while we are in the darkness of this world, we're often tempted to judge things by their appearance. 
And as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, he would have us see not with the eyes of our flesh, but he would have us see with the eyes of faith and build our life, not on the sinking sand, but instead on the rock who is Christ Jesus. Because what do we have in Jesus? We have the true and trustworthy word. We have the sign of God that will never lead us astray. We have the one who reveals to us his love and his mercy, exactly what kind of a God this is, who offers us even now the forgiveness of our sins, who pours out his spirit upon us so that we would not be overcome by sin, but instead would overcome it. But perhaps even greater still, what we have in Jesus is the shepherd who doesn't just lead us down into the valley of the shadow of death, but through his death and resurrection, he leads us out to the other side into a world that is teeming with resurrection life and is suffused with the glory and the majesty of God. And what Jesus tells us in John chapter 10 is that of my sheep, I lose not one. To those who long for heaven, God, God has given us the answer. If we wanna know, God says, here it is. I want you to know the reality and I want you to know the certainty because I would have you here with me. To not be those who were overcome by the darkness of this world, but to instead be those who overcome by faith in the one who conquered for us, Jesus Christ himself. The question for us is simply this. Which one will we be? Augustine said this, and this is where I'll close. They then who are destined to die need not be careful to inquire what death they are to die, but into what place death will usher them. God has told us the place. May we heed the call. May we cling to the Son and conquer in Him. Amen. Gracious Father, we thank you for your true and trustworthy word. And we ask, Lord, would you use it as a lamp to our feet and a light to our path? And through it, Lord, would you lead us all the way home? Would you take those hearts that have strayed from you and Lord, would you restore them to yourself? Would you take those places, those people, Lord, maybe whose hearts are dead and Lord, would you breathe your resurrection life into them? Would you call them to yourself? Would they hear their name called out by the shepherd himself even at this moment? And Lord, would you take our faith, which in the midst of this world is so weak and so flagging and so poor and these hearts, Lord, which are so fickle and Lord, would you make them new? Would you strengthen us for the road of head? in and through your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Caleb mentioned the signs that the Lord has given us through that illustration from C.S. Lewis with the silver chair in Aslan. And this is a sign. He gave us signs that uh, are real. They're physical. And they call us to remember. Just in that story where uh, Aslan told Jill to remember, remember the signs. 
And as soon as we get out into the cloudy and murky and foggy world around us and we're enveloped by sin and desire and temptation, it's so easy to forget the signs. And so we do it often. We come back to the table is a clear, decisive, tangible sign to remember. What is it that we're called to remember? Well, in the passage, first and foremost, we're to remember that it is done. That we conquer not because of anything that we bring to the table, not because of our own morality or goodness, but because Jesus is the conqueror and in him we conquer death and we defeat sin and we have victory over the grave and our bodies will one day be resurrected into newness of life in a real physical, physical, tangible reality called the new heavens and the new earth. And just as real as we hold this cup today and eat this bread and drink this juice, as real as that is, it will be just as real that on that day in the physical reality of the new heavens and the earth that we will see Jesus and not just see him, but touch him be embraced by him. That's what this table is reminding us of and that's what this table is pointing us to. In the passage that we just walked through, remember these words from the Lord. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. How in the world can we be with God? Only through the broken body of Jesus and the shed blood of Jesus. It's the only way. So we come to this table, perhaps weary, perhaps tired, perhaps defeated, discouraged. And this is where we find our strength. This is a means of grace. We don't believe that Jesus is physically present in these elements, but we do believe that the Spirit of God is at work in a powerful and yet even mysterious way through these elements to nourish us by his means of grace, to strengthen us for this life as we wait patiently for the life to come. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Sermon Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and to find other sermons from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.